This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. Welcome back to another edition of the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Johnny Owens, your host, along with Kyle Kimbrell out in LA, co-host. And today we got my friend Brad Lambert on from Methodist Healthcare in Houston, Texas. Um, Brad and I have known each other for several years now. I was trying to remember, Brad, we first met, you came to the Center for the Intrepid, I think it was around 2015 or something, um, when we right. first were, we're kind of discussing. Trying to copy your lab ideas there. <laughs> yeah, well, you've done, a, you've done a good job, man, that's for sure. So um, why don't you introduce yourself, Brad, and, and give a little bit of background. We're going to kind of go into a deep dive of what you're doing. You're, you're doing some badass stuff with blood flow restriction right now and, and any other topics. Sure. Um, so I, uh, after getting a, uh, uh, bachelor's in kines from, uh, Texas Lutheran university, um, <clears throat> I ended up wanting to go further than that. I was always very interested in sport training and particularly, uh, skeletal muscle plasticity. So in other words, the way that muscle adapts to different types of stimulus. So I went to uh, grad school at Texas A&M where I did a PhD under Steve Krauss. Um, and had a great team of not only applied scientists, but also um, very good basic scientists in muscle physiology, where I got interested in this concept of uh, muscle interference. So in other words, um, conflicting signaling, whether you're doing endurance training or resistance training, that governs how you adapt to those responses. It was a very big interest of mine. Because as a young 20-something, you're always like, why can't I just train for everything and be the best at everything? And then it gets more depressing as you like dig down into that um, line of research. So in other words, looking at how muscle adapts to very specific responses. And as far as kind of for the present talk today, while I was, I think it was a few years into my PhD work that uh, a researcher named Blake Rasmussen came and gave a talk at our seminar and started discussing what they were seeing early on with blood flow restriction. And, and Johnny, this might've been around the same time you were maybe down there um, at the, yeah. in that area. Um, so it was, it was becoming a, a fresh new topic because we were finding increases in muscle anabolism and nobody kind of knew, nobody really knew why at the time. It just seemed kind of interesting. And it was, again, it was another case of where you have people on the front lines and athletes kind of, figuring something out and then the scientists chasing to try to catch catch up and, and figure out the why and where it can be applied. So then after I went, um, I was interested in that type of work. I was interested in stable isotope tracing methodologies for um, things like protein synthesis. So I went to kind of one of the main places to go to learn about those, those kinds of methods, which is UTMB in Galveston <clears throat> out of the kind of the, the group that uh, where, where Bob Wolf kind of as a legend kind of pioneered um, a large portion of the field. So following that, I was off, I, uh, there, was a, there was a researcher at Texas A&M that I had known because funny enough, he had been a participant in my training study when I was doing a PhD. He was an engineer, biomedical engineer, and we always joked with each other about you know, why our fields weren't interacting with each other more. Um, because they were kind of over on one side of campus and we were doing our thing on the other side of campus. So uh, his name was Mike Marino and said, Hey, I think we're, we might be working on, um, setting up a lab at, uh, at Houston Methodist. So 
uh, I was given a, the opportunity to come work with orthopedics and sports medicine here with some of the best physicians in the country for, for very, very, uh, very, very uh, interesting injury types and rehab programs and things like that. So I jumped at that chance and also the chance to work uh, with athletes again and got here and started setting up a lab. And then uh, since then, um, I've kind of been more hired on full-time at Methodist because I was kind of split time between Texas A&M and Methodist. And now the lab, the orthopedic biomechanics research lab uh, functions um, as its own kind of entity here in orthopedics and sports medicine, where we do everything from biomechanics following uh, getting a total joint replacement to looking at rehab outcomes and, uh, or, or different types of implant device design. We also do sports performance testing. And then we also work with our folks over in the research Institute for some, for biologics and more basic, basic science type studies as well. So uh, a lot going on, um, but that kind of gives you a, a general overview. I think. It's amazing what you've grown in like five years when we first met. I mean, it, it seemed like the, the lab was just kind of really starting to, to happen. Yeah. And now it's like the, the big beast that everyone's competing with and the largest medical center in the world, the TMC in Houston. Um, so kudos, yeah, man. At this, at this time, it's, it's more just trying to field all of the, the, it's, it's awesome because we get a lot of studies in a lot of direction. The lab also functions to, to field research questions coming from our own department. So in our department, all of the, all the, re, all the fellows and residents and even interns are expected and required to do research. So it's not like a, it's not a hobby for anybody. So um, the lab is, ends up being highly integrated with all the, all of those different questions. So we kind of have to take them from all comers. And then from the, on the, on the BFR side of things, we also have to take what's coming into us from the sports community um, because professional athletes are uh, interesting characters and in what they decide to go do sometimes training wise. So then we have to assess, okay, well, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? Does this even work and make sense? So um so it's, it's, we're never, even though we've kind of been, the country has been kind of shut down. Uh, we've kind of been trying to use this time as catch up time to get some of these papers off our plate and, and <laughs> get, get some of this stuff out. Um, yeah. so kudos to the skeleton crew, uh, all of our coordinators that have been able to do this has been an interesting, uh, this whole situation has been interesting without having our usual um, students that we have in the lab yeah kind of workhorsing things for us i think we're all in the same boat and we just finished the dod grant season so that was a that was the beast that it was also on the plate so and, and i just want to point out too we have the techniques and orthopedics special edition that was only on blood flow restriction that, that i was one of the editors on and so you were one of the first guys i reached out to because we wanted to do a, a paper in there just on what we knew from the muscle protein synthesis side um, with blood flow restriction. So if you, if you go techniques and orthopedics, pull up Brad Lambert. Um, he wrote a great paper. I, I reviewed it and, and it was, it was awesome. So, um, you kind of want to go into that. And, and when you were down at Rasmussen's lab, were you actually working there when they were doing some of their initial BFR stuff or was that after? So I had gotten there just after that. And interestingly enough, they brought back one of the, um, one of the guys that had done a lot of work in that area. And he's, he's an amazing researcher uh, 
in just in muscle metabolism and his name's Chris Fry. Mm -hmm. And I would look up his, some of his work on not only blood flow restriction, but, but satellite cells and and, I mean, everything, the guy's, the guy's a genius. So, um, so I got to spend a lot of time talking with him about those studies and that's, and uh, that's actually contributed a lot to helping me kind of work on that paper. Additionally in that paper, I also want to point out uh, our, our, one of my co-authors, Corbin Hett, who's kind of our boots on the ground on the PT side over here, is doctor of physical therapy, did a great job of also kind of transitioning in that paper from, okay, here's kind of what we learned on the basic science side, and here's how it's now being applied clinically. Um, and because those are the guys that get to try to make sense of all the stuff we do in the lab. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, um, check it out if it's out there. And I agree. Chris Fry's a stud, man. Um, so he's at Kentucky now. I don't know if you know, he, he left, mm-hmm. um, but, yep. but, but we're involved. He has an ACL trial up there that, that we're involved with him as well. So yeah, anytime we can work with him, it's, it's, it's good stuff. So Brad, I have a confession to make if, if you'll permit me. Yeah. Um, cause we reference your paper a lot when we, when we teach, um, but I always tell people to grab a cup of coffee before they dive into that bad boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's dense, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a like, lot. smokes. There's a lot, there's a lot in it. And what we try to do in that paper is kind of um, try to separate out. I think some of the, here's what we know. And here's kind of the stuff that, that is being hypothesized, but at this point yeah. it's still a little bit hearsay. So I think, um, I think that kind of going through each of those bullet pointed items is it takes a minute. Um, and then yeah. also some sort of, that's why I put that giant convoluted figure in that paper and I, that big signaling figure, just more or less show everybody like, Hey, this is not exactly something that's just a, you get from point A to point B um, type thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that's, that's so important. I think in our, in our world to really kind of know, they kind of say, look, we think we know these things, but there's a lot of this stuff we're talking about. We don't necessarily know exactly, you know? Right. And I think sometimes that gets lost in translation yeah. from, um, from the paper to when I'm talking to some random guy who's got straps on in the gym. And, <laughs> and, but I, I always like them to teach me about it first because it's just interesting to hear, you know, what's your current understanding of why you're putting these on yourself at the moment. <laughs> what's the best what's the is there any description that stands out in your mind in terms of what's been described to you well i think like, oh, i think man. the big i think one of the biggest things that i that, that you hear a lot is is this idea that you know if i put it uh, if i put this on my leg i'm just going to start spewing testosterone and growth hormone out everywhere and it's going to make me and make me grow into this giant muscular thing and i think uh it that those are those are the kinds of things that we're trying to kind of tame a little bit because it, it where there's probably some seeds of something in there but but also just it's explained to people that it's, it's we're not doing magic here it's not we're not making it's not muscle alchemy it's 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 trying to get into uh a little bit of a better uh understanding of it but i was i was kind of when folks just start describing it um i i kind of want to hear how it's being translated out um, particularly to the average person, because now we're starting to get into this place where it's leaving the clinic and going into somewhat of a performance realm. Yeah, I, I agree, man. And we, we deal with those 
either emails or direct questions, I, I think, on a daily basis, man. So I, I can't tell you how much testosterone and growth hormone I've, I've rolled my eyes at because um, that, that's pretty much all we're hearing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. And then, you know, I mean, I remember back when, uh, when there's still a big thing, but like when, when exercise and cytokines was like a really, really hot topic um, and st still is to some degree, but uh, we had, a, we had research, we had a researcher at Texas A&M literally getting phone calls because he did a paper on IL-15 asking if people could inject IL-15. So it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it gets, it gets a little bit nuts, I think. Yeah. Well, I guess let's kind of get into the meaty gritty, uh, the nitty gritty, meaty gritty, whatever, man. I'm, I'm hungry. Um, Is that the fiddly bit? <laughs> yeah. So what, maybe mechanistically, what you're going after, you know, we talk about it all the time on, on this podcast, but um, what you're going after from a BFR perspective, say a post-op patient, post-op ACL, post-op TKA, you know, your, your, your thoughts on timing of this, your thoughts of occlusive pressures. I, I know we, we speak the same language as you, but right. I want to get it from your mouth. Right. So I think the main thing that we're trying to do that, that everybody's trying to do following ACL is, is get people back safely and, and quickly. Right. So we want to minimize, we want to minimize atrophy. We want to minimize loss of function in the limb. Um, so if you can do those two things, then I, then the general consensus is that you can get back a little bit faster. I think from an, so if you can, if you can stimulate kind of those acute anabolic processes and stave off some of these post-operative catabolic, um, issues, then I think it, it puts you ahead of the game a little bit. And as far as like, as far as timing here at our clinic, we have people that are starting within the first week of a, after surgery. Yeah. Um, simple things like quad sets. And a lot of this is recommendations from you guys uh, because you guys have done a really good job of taking the lit that's out there and applying it in a practical way for PTs to actually make sense of. Um, starting to do a little bit, starting to look in, into it a little bit of this concept of prehab um, before surgery as well. Um, can we just kind of, even though they're injured, can we just kind of cause enough of a stimulus before they're about to be unloaded for a little bit? And I really do think there's something interesting that happens between the time of injury and then, and then if you see somebody right after injury, it's a lot different than when you see them right after surgery. You see ACL guys come in right after injury and they actually sometimes don't look that bad. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the, the, the uh, you, so you have a trauma and then you give them a second major trauma by performing surgery on them. Right. So then you're kind of doing a double insult to the limb. Uh, and I think that's where the big challenge is. I mean, in, in a two week time span, you can see people losing like a half, a half kilo in a leg, um, yeah. just from, just from the unloading, um, effects of that. So right now the, our general, the general approach for our lower limb is we kind of follow your guidelines that, that, that Owens recovery science puts out is that the 80% occlusion, in the lower limbs as tolerated and then 50% occlusion in the upper extremity. Um, interestingly enough, it, it seems as though while, while that's not always the most comfortable thing for patients within the first, I'd say, week or two, uh, the one, one interesting observation we have is that by about that third week, they tend to not have as big of an issue with, with the compression in terms of discomfort. Um, yeah. So far, it's been generally, we, we found it to be pretty safe. 
in older populations, I know what Corbin and those guys are doing sometimes is starting people at, at slightly reduced cuff pressures and then kind of going as tolerated. Yeah. Uh, I know in, I know in the lit, you don't have, it's, it's, the lit's pretty, pretty, um, suggested we don't have this, this like magic threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you, even at some lower, lower cuff pressure, you still get a nice, a nice benefit from using them. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of helpful for some folks that, that may not tolerate those things as well. Did you have any issues initially with your docs um, moving forward with this concerned about anything or concerned about starting early? Cause uh, to be, to be honest, when we started getting in on the ACL side of things, um, Dr. Pat McCulloch and then uh, Robert Jack as well here, um, and I know doc, Dr. Harris in our department as well, they were actually kind of the ones that were pushing for it a little bit, um, seeing, seeing that it had had some beneficial effects. There didn't seem to be really any apprehension, particularly um, with anyone going into it. So it, it, it very quickly after, like in the midst of us getting started on the study, it kind of became a standard of care item for most of our yeah. clinics. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is a lot of that is Corbin and uh, Corbin Het and also our head of uh, um, our head of physical therapy, Matt Holland. Matt Holland. Yeah. Um, really kind of really kind of working on this because they've just they're, they're the ones who get to hear all of the and it, you know, as, as researchers, we get we take direct measurements. Right. And that's the stuff we report on. But they they kind of get to deal with the patients day to day as well. So they, they've had they've really had no issues and they've been following the guidelines. So Matt Holland has the, the honor of being my first certified provider for an open course. Um, I'd done multiple privates for the teams, but Matt was the first one I did when I did my first course and he was the only person at my course. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it was me and Matt. But but now but now look at where now look at where it is. All you needed was that one guy. And now I just, I just needed Matt Holland. Was, yeah, man, that was the thing. Poor guy. <laughs> we just sat. We just sat in a room like and talked. That was basically what the course was because there's no one yeah. else there. Yeah. Well, but that's that's kind of I think. Uh, but as far as getting into it, there wasn't really this big apprehension. Um, the the I think the folks that were having to do some convincing now with might be more on the older patient side. Uh, particularly on the, particularly in the, in the joints area, joint replacement and things like that, because there's just so much that rides on those kind of first weeks as far as their general timeline and, and implant success. And so the timelines may be a little bit extended there. It's something we eventually would like to look into. Um, But uh, I think that's, I think, I think seeing who and how these things, who can benefit and how these things can be modified for, older participants is kind of where we're at orthopedics wise now, because on the sports side, as far as rehab goes, particularly in the stuff that's distal from the cuff, um, I think most of our, our physical therapy crew is pretty sold. Yeah. And I, I, I would say, you know, like you guys are, are definitely, you know, early adopters have been doing it for a while and all these groups that have a lot of comfort level. I think we're still with the total joints. There's that question, when would you start on this older TKA? 
Um, and, and then it, it, it's a different, it's also a different mindset of, of people, right? Because for sure. they're not, they're not worried about getting back onto the field to run the 40 yard dash. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to kind of get up and get moving again. So the question is, you know, does that involve them having to come to the PT clinic twice a week and then do this and that? I would say my answer to that anecdotally would be, it depends on the type of joint replacement patient you're dealing with. For so sure. I would say you have, you have different, cl- you, have, you have folks that are kind of getting a total joint replacement because they're in pain and they just to be able to ambulate. And then you get people who are, I get pain when I'm out golfing for three hours right. and I've got an osteoarthritic knee, but I'm still very, very active and I want to maintain that level of activity. So I think it really depends on um, how we target the right people for that intervention. Yeah. But I, I, I hope we kind of see this progression where it's, we're getting those kind of hard chargers that we know we need to do it a little bit more. And then, you know, kind of like we're, we've got some new vascular stuff where we're starting to see it with some of these oxidative stress people where we're, we're focused on the vascular system. Then maybe it is rehab for these total knees. The outcomes might be better if you take this sarcopenic elderly female who would maybe be, they're just going to cut and cut her loose after that. She might really benefit from oh, certainly. And exposure. I, I think- I think even like in the later period, starting them at like, you know, potentially three to six months post-op because they're still getting follow-ups at a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, keep in mind, most of the people that are getting these joint replacements, most of these women are postmenopausal as well. So yeah. you yeah. have all sorts of, uh, um, all sorts of other things that might challenge bone. Yeah. So do you have a, a, a joint trial still planned? I know we talked about one in the past or is we're that trying, just... We're we're trying to do some convincing now. I think anecdotally for we're in the middle of trying to collect a little bit of data. Um, I think from some of the patients that come and do this elect to come and do rehab with us. So I can, I can say that some of the, uh, some of the patients are undergoing that, that uh, therapy, not kind of as prescribed um, by the PT guys, but it's not like there's not like an official protocol for that it's just that they think you know if somebody might benefit from it or can tolerate it yeah. uh, so i think it's going to be it's going to be a little while of kind of collecting how you know how are these folks doing before we can really make that make that sell i think well we need that done you know kyle's basically a postmenopausal sarcopenic body <laughs> type and so uh he, he's dying for that kind of research because he needs whatever he can man yeah um I, so, I, think, I think I think just outside of surgery, that could be a, a uh, not a bad approach for that pop, for that population that's at risk of you know osteoporosis and and fracture. Get particularly given the findings we had in terms of bone. So yeah, yeah, I want to get into that. And, and basically, this Parkinson trial, it's not out yet, but um, the conclusion was it was really impressive what we saw in a month. That maybe that is they come in for one month a, in a, a year just to kind of get this vascular and, and kind of strength tune up. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And their, and their functional measures improved as well. So um, that's an approach I want to go after. So let's roll into this ACL study. Um, badass study. Congrats, man. It looks, sounds like it's about to come out in publication, we hope. And so just want you to share what you want to share. You've already presented it at AOSSM. And so yeah. um, we've talked a lot about it. But you want to go over kind of what the study was and, and yeah, what you can share? It's, it's in review right now, um, and, ba- and basically, we took, a, we took a group of uh, 
we, we did a randomized trial where we had two groups, um, one of 16, one of 17 patients. Um, or maybe two of 16, I'll have to check that from the paper. <laughs> but the, uh, essentially what we did was we had one group randomized into do standard of care ACL rehab. And then the other group that was randomized into the same exact rehab protocol, just with the addition of BFR on select exercises. So things like quad sets, single leg leg press, and it was all, it was all progressive um, in intensity from beginning to end. Uh, we did DEXA scans on um, total body to get the limb as well as site-specific scans of the knee before, before surgery at three and at uh, six weeks and 12 weeks of rehab. We also did functional measures on them and then also measured follow-up uh, time to return to sport activity. So these are mostly, this is mostly comprised of athletes um, in, in terms of uh, who, who participated in the study. Um, and then following the study just found that, uh, that uh, only the control group was found to have significant decreases for the most part in muscle mass, whereas the BFR group was found to pretty much maintain their muscle mass throughout the course of rehab. Uh, the, other, the other part of it is, is bone, right? Because now you're not loading. You're not mechanically loading as much anymore. So that's something we worry about as far as like post-operative fracture risk um, and failure potentially of the graft. So what we saw after, after, uh, they did their program was that the compared to the control group, the BFR group had significantly, uh, better preserved bone. And that's not only at the whole limb, that's at the femur. When you isolate the femur, it's also down there at the distal femur and proximal tibia, kind of around where your sites are that you're doing your bone tunnels. So, that that was a big one for us because that was the first time we've seen anything with bone yeah. and BFR. In general, though, from a physiology standpoint, that's not a that that's a new finding for BFR. Um, it's not an entirely new finding for for just resistance exercise in general. Only in that if you do something to stimulate muscle, bone is going to follow along a little bit slower, but it's still going to follow along. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of, it was neat that in the absence of being able to heavy, heavily mechanically load these folks, that we were able to have some sort of preservation effect. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, not, whether it's directly a result of that or not, on average had a one, I think it was 1.4 mo uh, month reduction in return to, uh, return to activity to sport so and the people giving the uh the, the physicians giving the clearance for that were blinded to study group so um so it's so the, the findings are pretty cool the the, the only thing I, w I wish the the challenge in the study is that we were only able to do functional testing at week eight and week 12 because it's not like we can take people and do a bunch of functional testing right after surgery right obviously yeah, week four or something yeah obviously you can't do that so we were only able to really capture that eight to 12 week window. And I, I just don't, so we didn't really see any difference between groups there, but the problem is, is you, they've already been in rehab for two months. So you don't really know what the change was across that time. It's just, it just is a limitation of, of um, just the nature of the, sur the surgery and the timeline as well. But uh, the results are pretty encouraging, particularly the bone stuff. I think the next phase from there, um, there's a few areas we want to look at in terms of uh, what's causing that signaling mechanism for bone to grow. And then two, um, does it work? 
does it work in a similar manner for other types of surgeries? So we have a study going right now looking at uh, Achilles ruptured, Achilles repairs, um, and also looking in the upper extremity, looking at like distal radius um, fractures as well. This also gave us some interesting thought into potentially looking at this in the realm of stress fractures. Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where we're, where we're kind of headed now, kind of in that DOD spin of things. Yeah. Uh, because I think, I think that could significantly increase timelines for, for getting some of those guys back because the military spending so much money um, per year on brand new guys that they then can't use. Yes. Big time. Well, and having dealt with a bazillion of those in the DOD, you know, you've got like several months of a time course of doing nothing. Right. So then they just atrophy. I mean, they're basically unloaded. So they, they, they go to hell and you're waiting on the fracture to finally heal. And then you start rehab after that. So you're, you've already like four months in till you're finally trying to clear them. And it's almost always a new recruit um, who and doesn't you, really have that time to lose. Yeah. And then you're clearing them to go back to whatever got them there. You yeah. know, so you have to get them reconditioned for that sort of a thing. So, um, I think then we half time we're not getting them. We weren't getting them back cause they had to just go back. Right. And if they, if they go to a Frank fracture, especially at the hip, they're done. They were kicked yeah. out. You know, you're lost right. and then you pay disability forever on that person. They're hardly served at all. Right. Right. So we're working on that. Um, I think would be, is, is an area particularly in, in some kind of more of the sport populations where that that's a common, you yeah. see that commonly occur. Um, and so that's kind of where we were kind of following the bone stuff with, with all of this at the moment. But dude, to say in this study, you showed preservation of bone and faster return to play. That's freaking, that's badass, man. I mean, that's, that's like, because your other things we expected to see strength and, you know, hypertrophy and things like that, that, that goes along with like Luke's NHS ACL trial, you know, he showed pain, uh, was better and swelling and range of motion as well. But you combine that with what you see, we're starting to really peel the onion back here. Yeah. And I think, I think based on, there's a, there's a study that came out recently that where they, they kind of did post ACL rehab or late ACL rehab, high intensity stuff with, with BFR didn't, didn't see a whole lot with it. But I think to me, what the, what the combined results show is that uh, if you can get them on it soon yeah. after surgery, you can actually save yourself quite a bit of having, yeah. You're, you're, you don't, you don't get as far down in the hole. Yeah. Uh, that was a Michigan study and it, it took way too long to start. Um, and also heavy load with BFR just isn't something that you need. Um, yeah. for sure. well, it's, it's when you're, when you're already at like max, when you're already at max recruitment, pushing max force, it, it, you know, how, how much further, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if you, if, yeah. you know, if you, did, if you did that and then went down to like say 40% and then did, and then burned out, Maybe, maybe that, but, um, but yeah, it's kind of like a diminishing returns at that point. Um, it's, it's, you used 80% limb occlusion to start with on everyone in this one. For, for the, for the lower limb. Yeah. Yeah. And then I know you in the, your upper extremity, you do a 30, 15, 15 failure protocol. I can't remember on this one. Did yeah, y'all do our, that on this one? Yeah. For our shoulder stuff for the, for the ACL study, we followed the 30, 15, 15, 15. Um, and that's, we're, we're, we're talking about rehab there and we're talking about also wanting to not go to failure or fatigue just from a standpoint of risk, but also the yeah. goals different, right? So the goals are yeah. just more getting, getting function back. 
I think in with our shoulder stuff, so I'll, I'll kind of preface, you want me to kind of preface with the shoulder study? Yeah, in? go for it. Can yeah. I ask a, an ACL question first yeah. though? Cause I, I just, a point of clarification, cause I'm sure we'll get asked this at some point. So did the subjects in that study, were they cleared to return to play or did they actually return to play? Cleared. 1.4 cleared. Cleared based on their physician assessments. Okay. Okay. So like an in-office hop test, right. that kind of right. thing. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. Just a, kind of an important point, like in our world, people kind of yeah. ask that. So people get all worked up ah, it's before nine months. Yeah. Yeah, right. Thanks so much for tuning into the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. If you like this podcast, you like the content, if there's stuff you would like for us to cover, uh, questions you have for us to answer, if you send it to us and we use it, we're going to send you a t-shirt, so that's a bonus. But also, we'd just like to know what you'd want to hear. So send that our way via email. That address is info at owensrecoveryscience.com or you can send it to us via DM on social media. If you want to learn more from us at our in-person courses, go to our website, owensrecoveryscience.com. Click the Get Certified tab at the top, and you'll see a drop-down of where we'll be all throughout the U.S. and internationally. If you have not picked up the independent study course from the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapists that we wrote, please do so. Go to orthopt.org, and you can purchase it there. It's part of a three- part monograph series covering blood flow restriction exercise, sleep, and nutrition. And so very kind of informative and certainly pertinent topics for rehab professionals, no matter what setting you practice in. So grab that, give that a read, let us know what you thought. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast here with Brad Lambert of Methodist Houston. Yeah, well, let's roll into the shoulder, man, because that one's badass too. So yeah, that was an interesting one because uh, at the time, which was about, I'd say, a year and a half, two years ago, you know, when we think about BFR, we're including muscle downstream from the cuff. So in theory, the magic that we are trying to focus on or the anabolism or these effects that we're seeing is distal from the cuff, predominantly um, from a rehab standpoint. However, we got – we were started getting um, – calls and messages more so our physicians uh dr mcculloch about guys taking baseball players taking this stuff and doing it for their shoulder taking bfr and doing it for their shoulder so initially we were kind of like well why um because it seemed we made sense if you're saying coming back from tommy john or something like that um but it seemed odd for the shoulder because obviously you're not restricting the blood to the shoulder so right we said, okay, we have a situation where we have this bandwagon thing happening now. And it not only, not only in using like, say these, these, the automated units, but it was around the same time you saw this stuff popping up all over, uh, online. Where Amazon and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where essentially people are strapping toe straps to themselves because they think it's causing all of this stuff, you know, for <laughs> some of the stuff that we're saying, saying earlier. Um, so we said, okay, let's, well, let's look at it. Let's see if there's anything there. Cause what at the time, as we were sitting around the lab table is myself, um, Corbin Hett and Dr. McCulloch. And one of the things we kind of thought, okay, well maybe because when you're doing rotator cuff exercise and shoulder exercise, it's very hard to isolate those muscles. 
it's very it's pretty difficult in fact they have to you have to kind of do some odd things to get those things to, to isolate while you're training them um so our thought was perhaps if you can fatigue out the muscle that's downstream from the cuff maybe there's something that causes the shoulder to engage more when you're actually doing that activity and you get more work done for, for fewer reps. So that was our initial thought. Um, and then, so we said, okay, well, let's do a study on it and let's, let's start with just general population, healthy people who aren't regularly weight training. We'll do it the, the controlled lab style where we just put them through, um, we, we decided to do an eight week study looking at rotator cuff training, just four simple exercises, external and internal rotation at 90 degrees, dumbbell scaption, and then a dumbbell uh, sideline external rotation. Very, very four simple exercises that somebody could come in and do on each arm for 20 minutes. Um, and uh, so we put them through the 15, 30, 15, 15, uh, fatigue protocol. So the fatigue part's important because at the end of the day, if you're doing this to train for just preventative purposes, not really coming back from injury, at the end of the day, if the answer was just doing five or six more reps, that doesn't warrant buying a, a device. It just mm -hmm. doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. If it wasn't any better than just doing a few extra reps, then Below the failure, yeah. then it just didn't make sense. And I think my my critique of some of the BFR studies where they're comparing, um, where they're comparing low load and they go 30, 15, 15, 15 without the cuff and then low load 30, 15, 15, 15 with the cuff. This doesn't answer that question. It just says using the cuff is a little bit better. Um, but is it better? I'm really happy to hear you say that, by the way, like that's, that tickles me. Right. So yeah. is it, is it better if they just did a couple of, then if they just did a couple extra reps, which makes, you know, th then that warrants you not having to pay money for a device, which again, for, for professional athletes, it's not a big deal. They can buy like 20 of them and it doesn't, it's not a big thing, but for like say a university or a small school or something like that, those people have to think about those costs. So, or like a small PT clinic. So that's what we, that's what we did. And then we, and to look at shoulder activation, we used, uh, we also wanted to look at, at shoulder activation during exercise. So we, in this study, what we did was, we had pre and post assessments of strength and endurance. The strength assessments were standard clinical shoulder assessments using an iso isokinetic dynamometer, um, like a handheld dyno. And then we also did a fatigue test using EMG on the shoulder. So we did uh, anterior, middle, posterior, delt, infraspinatus, um, teres minor. Uh, some of the stuff we, we can't, you can't get to is surface EMG. So those, that's what we were limited to. It also trapped. Um, and then, uh, and then I'll, and then measured repetitions to failure and looked at EMG activation as they were going. We also did DEXA again before and after we looked at lean mass in the shoulder region. Obviously the, the issue with DEXA is you can't necessarily get individual muscles, but mm -hmm. you can get, you can get region, you can get regional yeah. muscle. And then we also looked at the whole arm. Um, and that study's in review right now by AJSM. Um, and we've done, we've, we've presented this stuff at, at conferences before us. So essentially what we found is, um, greater increases in muscle mass. Um, every set, they, the, the folks trained twice a week, um, for these things. And we found that the BFR group progressed at a faster rate. Uh, they, they were increased in resistance by one pound every week. They could complete a minimum of 15 reps on their last 
set. If they got to that 15 reps, we said, you know, go for it um, and see how many you can get. Obviously everything was form and form limited. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, yep. So, so form limited. In other words, if his elbows started popping out, um, if the arms started bending, if uh, during scaption, if they started swinging or hunching in any way, um, the set was over and they've reached fatigue. That's something we have to be sticklers on with our baseball guys that are doing that, the, the second part of the study right now, um, because just they're athletes, so they try to cheat. Um, <laughs> so uh, at the end of that, we had we had greater muscle mass improvements, greater improvements in endurance. The EMG stuff was the stuff that had us kind of interested as well, because what we thought we would see with the EMG was both of the both of the groups start out at a relatively similar um emg amplitude for each for the for the prime movers and then as they started getting to fatigue we we then thought we'd see an uptick in the bfr group potentially if this was if our hypothesis was correct um however we actually saw the uptick occur like right off the bat right up, mm -hmm. right at the first few reps they're already at a higher output and amplitude so now we're kind of now we're kind of in the paper we, we deal with some possible explanations for that. Um, one of the thoughts we have is that just the act of having cuff compression on the arm there to begin with may give you some sort of additional stimulatory benefit because you have sensing mechanisms right at the end of those muscles where they insert. Um, so we're talking when you're talking about um, <clears throat> things that detect stretch and pressure in muscle particularly with the shoulder as it's, as, as it's this big multi, um, multi-planar uh, joint, right? So you have, you have uh, a lot of range of motion. So our thought is that, that just the compression itself causes the shoulder to potentially turn on more so than downstream muscle fatiguing. Um, and that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. Looking at it, we don't necessarily, I, I don't know on the arm, if we can go so far as to say, we're getting all of these local signaling effectors occurring. So in other words, stuff that's, that's kind of dumping out of muscle as it's being occluded and then coming, making its way back up through the shoulder. I'm not saying that's not part of it, but we right. think, um, we think, uh, the shoulder putting in being more active during the activity itself might be what's what's uh the prime mover of our of our study so far and there was a lower extremity emg study that they looked at 40 60 80 and the emg was much more distal i mean they had it all the way down the, the, towards the you know distal on the vastus lateralis and the rectus and and saw the same thing like first set basically at 80 percent Right. It, it, it was already up. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Was that a stretch response as well? Or, I mean, right. I, I, I'm with you. Like, I'm not sure if like first set, it's just like, boom, it's like, wow, everything just activated. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, cause you see in certain situations like tactile cueing can get used to get certain muscles to turn, to turn on, yeah. to do things, particularly in PT. You also have uh, there was another study where they had arm compression going on and they got more, there was, I think, I want to say they were doing, press like a chest press activity yeah it was it was yasuda's chest press one yeah and they were getting a little more activity out of the out of the chest when they were doing that so i think that's there's something driving that that's i think related to just the fact that the cuff is compressed so what we're trying to look at now on that end uh, we've kind of split this into two directions one area we're going to look at is um doing doing other other 
shoulder exercises and activities, so like kettlebell um, bands, things like that, but at different cuff pressures to see if it's to, to see how that might influence things in the uh, acutely in the upper extremity. Yeah. And, and because of our first study, we wrote a, another grant to uh, Major League Baseball who decided to give us the go-ahead to look at this in pitchers. So we are very fortunate to have a very close relationship with uh, the Rice Owls. And uh, they have kind of really stepped up as an athletics department and are kind of they're, – they're very much trying to – move into a science forward way of approaching athletics. Um, and, and so I think uh, this, it was a good opportunity to work with some D1 athletes and we're kind of in our second year of the study right now. So we're trying to see, you know, you're talking about general population people, right? Who right. aren't really training. That's different than an athlete who's training all the time. The responses in muscle and someone who's trained are different than someone who's complete, like a complete blank slate. Um, and pitchers in general as athletes are particularly odd um, in terms of the forces in the stuff. Well, not, I'm mean, not just, no, they're, not, odd. they're odd. You're right. They're odd. They're yeah. not athletes. <laughs> they're odd. Exclude left-handers. Cause you never know what you'll get. Yes. If you got so not just, not just psychologically, which <laughs> but, um, in terms of it's, it's a, this, the forces that they're subjected to um, particularly at the shoulder. So we wanted to see if we could put them through the same sort of protocol because in general, they do this type of training for, for baseball anyway, for, for right. shoulder preservation. And sh so we wanted to basically apply our study protocol to them. And again, having a group with and without BFR and we're looking at the pitching arms and basically putting them through the same thing and looking at DEXA as well. We're also tracking their pitch. We're also tracking their pitch counts, their velocities, um, their release height, and all of that spin rates, all that, all the general like baseball pitching metrics. Anytime we do a sports study, we always like to have some aspect we can relate back to the stats that those like coaches and players are used to looking at. Um, the other, the, the very big important uh, addition to this study that we really wanted to look at is motion capture. So we're using a, we're using a, a Vicon motion capture system to look at their mechanics before and after they go through the training protocol. Because here's the part that we're interested in. If you train someone and you put on a bunch of muscle mass, that's great for your average person who's interested in putting on a bunch of muscle mass. Um, but these guys have to perform and they have to have range of motion and they can't. And so we want to make sure that whatever we're doing, or we want to check whether or not it has an impact on their pitching mechanics beyond just training by itself. Um, because it could be that if, if we see some sort of benefit muscle and strength wise, but it's doing something that's, that's negative to their pitching mechanics. Um, that could, that could kind of raise a red flag. So that's good. Um, I think that's, that's an important part and, uh, where I could see it, what, what I see it being used for now. And I know you, you have some experience with, with some of these MLB guys doing some of this stuff and where I could see it being used potentially in a college or, or pro setting, uh, is in kind of that post game, Yep. kind of post game or post game um, kind of like a flush out or in, or to make up for potential lost work. If you had a guy that was supposed to pitch six or seven innings and he went out and got crushed after two and has to get pulled out of the game. Well, now you've had all of this planned work on an arm that the arm is not going to see and they're in your pitching rotation. You're having to deal with that. So, um, or if you're a reliever, you don't know necessarily if you're a bullpen guy, you don't necessarily know, you're not always in on when you're going to be going in or being used. Um, 
it gives you an opportunity to kind of particularly do, do some in-season maintenance um, and then off-season potential strengthening and preservation. So that's where I could see it being used. Um, I don't anticipate, just given the nature of the exercise, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily see it as being a some sort of like giant performance augmenting, but, you know, more kind of safety and maintenance. So yeah. <laughs> Well, we're seeing a, a, a lot of it. And so we get tons of anecdotals in the MLB and um, it's, it's kind of very similar to your protocol, but I think it's like what you said, they already do this like post throwing throwers program, you know, where they're lifting little, you know, onesie, twosie pound weights. And it's almost like, it's just lore, you know, it's like, well, yeah, this is what you do after you throw, right. you got to come in and, right. you know, Nolan Ryan did it. And it was like, well, yeah. why exactly? And so, you know, we just, initially working with the teams was like, well, why don't you try it with a cuff? I'm going to start seeing what, what you see. I mean, now, I mean, we got some pitchers, it's like life or death. They have to have it, you know, yeah, they feel like it's that. doing something to their arms, but. Um, yeah. So it's, it's one of those things we want to move it out of the place where it's like, you know, even talking to some of the, the pitching coaches with those guys, you know, if, if it, they'll tell you if they think it works, then it works just because, yeah. uh, you know, it could, but we're trying to move it out of the realm of, I guess, superstition and see, you know, yeah. what is this actually doing? Because outside of the, outside of the pros who have the, the ability to afford those kinds of um, like wants for certain types of things, I think yeah. you also get into some of these, does it make sense for a, a D1 or a D2 to have one of these things kind of sitting back in the training room mm -hmm. uh, because you show that it preserves preserves arms. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, that's what we're trying to look at at the moment. What, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think external rotation endurance was kind of like the big winner of, um, of kinda, your measurements, right? Kind of cumulative really um, overall, as far as, uh, as far as what they gained overall in a one-time measure, we see a lot of, uh, we see a lot of internal rotation, but if you look at how they progress over time with the volume that they're able to achieve, because we track each, we track resistance and reps performed for each training session. So we plot it over weeks, how they progress. Mm -hmm. uh, you really kind of see it across the board. Um, at least that's what we see in the healthy, healthy people. We haven't, we haven't fully fleshed out in the pitchers yet. We're about halfway through with those guys at the moment. Um, but uh the only other kind of anecdotal stuff I would say is right now the challenge for us seems to be there's a general recommendation starting that we've, that we've had of starting at around 20% of their one uh, RM that we're getting off of an isokinetic test, right? Um, we know the reps, we know, we know what they're doing is not necessarily isokinetic, but we're using that because it kind of follow, aligns with, with, uh, with clinic protocols. Yeah. Um, and I think as, after we get done with all these, we we'll ha may have some recommendations for the shoulder, depending on whether or not they're doing like say a scaption or an internal rotation versus an external rotation. Um, mostly because you have, there's, there's other, for example, on an internal rotation, you have a lot of other muscle that can help you do that at 90 degrees. You have all of this stuff inside, you have deltoids, you have, you have uh, pectoralis, you have all yeah, of these can, things. Yeah. Yeah. So you can manage intensities that are a little bit higher at the front end compared to like doing an external rotation um, where they they actually are considerably a, a little bit weaker, even when you're talking about the same 20% of an isokinetic uh, movement, those, those external rotators tend to fatigue out 
a lot faster. Um, so it, it may be adjusting those percentages based on what exactly they're doing um, in general recommendations, but obviously from a rehab standpoint and you're just trying to get people to kind of start going through those movements, it makes sense. I just think for the sport performance side of things and the preventative side of things, um, we, there may be, it may be worth kind of tweaking some of those recommendations a little yeah. bit. Well, you're starting to move towards, well, what's, what's optimal, you know, like we have these recommendations that we make, but most of them are based off of quad and bicep, you know, right. like nobody's even really looked at what's optimal for hamstring. Is there a different pressure needed for hamstring versus quad? I, I there's still a ton of questions that we have out there on the, just on the exercise phys side, you know, that, right. that would help our rehab because we would be able to dial things in right. a little bit better. So I think that's cool. Even the, even the 30, 15, 15, 15 mm -hmm. thing, we're, we're doing that because that's kind of what was, what was done in the beginning. And we know it generally, it generally works um, as far as like those, those applications. But um, who's to say that's, that's right. as far as like whether or not that's the, the best thing that's not, the, these aren't like magic numbers that somebody came no. up with. Just know it right. generally, it generally gets the job done. Yeah. Brad, did you guys have any pushback on putting the cuff? Because we get this question a lot, especially from baseball. Did you have any pushback, like, putting the cuff on the throwing arm? Um, and then did you – do you have concerns in particular for, like, thoracic outlet? There's some folks out there in the baseball world that are really kind of um, concerned that maybe we facilitate some hypertrophy of the scalenes that we wouldn't normally get, or so perhaps just the compression of the nervous, the neurovascular structures would be problematic. We haven't had, I don't think it, there's been any issue from the, the, the nervous, uh, the neurovascular um, side of things. 50% occlusion is not difficult for them to deal with. The hypertrophy stuff is an equal concern for me because I don't want to, you know, again, you don't want to manipulate somebody's mechanics into a, into a harmful place. Right. Uh, that's one thing I would say is, you know, we have more people throwing very fast than ever before. Right. But we also have more people getting injured. Um, and you see in Tommy John's happen more frequently. And so are we training ourselves into being able to throw fast, but also do that at maybe the expense of maintaining good mechanics. So I think that's certainly something we're in, we're thinking about when we do these sessions with pitchers, we're doing them generally after they're doing a, a pitching performance. So um, the comment is always symptom limited, symptom limited, symptom limited. Mm -hmm. If anything feels like it's tight, stop. If anything feels like if, if you come in and you're, you were throwing earlier today and your arm feels, you know, it feels a little bit thrashed. Okay. Let's cut the weights in half. And then you're going to do two sets instead of four sets. Um, or if uh, doing a particular movement on a particular day is bothering you, uh, we need to cut that back. So I think that's the big thing is not being hyper married to a protocol and um, keeping things consistent enough, but understanding again, symptom limited is the biggest, the biggest thing. Um, obviously we don't want to do this with guys the day before they got to pitch. We don't want to do this with guys the day they have the day they have to pitch. Um, they're concerned about their performance and we're concerned about their safety. So we tend to find that with the, with this group, the, the best time to get at them while that where they still have plenty of time to recover is on those days that they're pitching. What's beautiful here too, you know, you're a hardcore fizz guy and, and you can come at it from that angle. Part of the problems that we, we get is like, okay, this, this study found this, you know, we get a lot out of the Scandinavian groups 
but they had to do it twice a day for three weeks. You know, yeah. and it's just clinically it just doesn't happen. This is such an easy product. It's twice a week. You know, okay, that's right. doable. It's, you can literally, you, you can li what they literally what they do in their sessions. They'll be in the middle of a strength and conditioning session, and it's just a station they go to, right? Yeah. It's just this, it's just a station they have to be at for twenty minutes, and get that arm done, and then get out. So it's not like. And additionally, these are exercises they're they're familiar with doing anyway, all the way since they've been in high school. So right. um, these are not new new exercises to them. Um, I would say the other, the only other concern that we get generally is, um, uh, just in baseball as a sport is what's going on outside of their normal standardized strength and conditioning program. And I think that is a challenge in the pros more than it is in college actually, because you have everybody that's on there can be with their specialist doing their stuff. Um, so as a PT, you have to make yourself as a PT or a trainer, you have to make yourself aware of all of the outside things that guys are yeah. doing. Yeah. Uh, um, and that is sometimes easier said than done at the college level. You know, you're already, you're already dealing with um, strength and conditioning program that's there by the school. Um, but it's, it's keeping tabs on, uh, on anybody who may be going out and doing outside things outside of that, that adds yeah. additional load onto those arms because everybody, uh, everybody and their mother has some sort of gym somewhere where they're a specialist in yeah. some sort of thing. Cause they took an online class at some point. Um, everyone thinks so. more is better. Unfortunately, half the time I, I just had a call with an NFL, a pretty big time NFL guy, not directly him, but one of his trainers who he's already doing BFR with this team. And now he's wanting to go work with his trainer and do it extra outside. And it's like, man, yeah, yeah, let's exactly. talk about volume here, dude. This is, I exactly. think he's so, enough. Yeah. And this kind of taps into our, so yeah, not overdoing it and getting guys to understand that recovery is, an, as, um, is as important as how much they train, particularly when you're talking about something like BFR where, where there's fatigue, potentially fatiguing exercise mm -hmm. involved. Mm -hmm. I think this kind of ties into what we had with our conversation. This is more of like a DOD type question is, is, uh, and, and is, um, you know, the value of being able to know what pressures you're using while you're doing things and the amount of, of volume that you're putting in. And that's kind of where I caught, where I'm, I'm kind of cautious about saying anything about some of these devices that you can just go online and buy and use. And then from a military standpoint, as well as an athletic standpoint, you have motivated people who are trying to get better mm. in the, you know, kind of no pain, no gain. And, um, it's, it's really, the concern is that somebody's going to do something at some point where they, they just kind of go a little, go a little far, like any kind of, like any kind of, uh, training, training thing. So I think that's why as we, as we progress with the performance side of this, we just got to be careful, I think. Sure. Just go back before I forget the ACL study that was twice a week. ACL was twice a week. Yeah. Twice a week. So beautiful. That's what ours are all twice a week as well. So that's, it's, that's good. You know, that's the question we get. Um, do I, how often do I need to do this? And, yeah, and, and it was, most of our trials are set up for twice a week now. And the, 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 uh, the, the other question we get is, are they leaving it? You know, are they doing it the whole, the entire time they're in there doing stuff? And the answer is yeah. no. It's usually yeah. what, what our PTs will do is they'll pick um, maybe, maybe one or two, um, key select exercises that are maybe the, the big ones for the day. And those are the ones that they'll focus on with the BFR. 
Um, so it's not like they're in there doing every single thing they do with BFR. Um, it's, it's kind of a progressive program that starts literally like for week one, they're just sitting there flexing their quads, doing quad sets, um, out to where at the end you're seeing things like single leg lunge and leg press and, and, um, single leg step downs and stuff that's, that's more intense. Nice. Well, man, congratulations. Badass couple studies. I mean, we're preserving bone. We're getting fast return to play. We're showing proximal. Um, you're, you're, you're hitting all the ones that, uh, that I want to show, man. You, yeah, you I mean, bastard. It's, it's one of, <laughs> it's one of those ones where, uh, it's, it's the, uh, for some reason, I keep telling myself every time we get done doing one of these chronic training studies or, or clinical studies that I'm going to stop doing these and just do, do the acute stuff. But for some reason, yeah. I rope into them. So no, we got um, enough. We got enough acute guys. Keep doing yeah. what you're doing, man. We need more of, of you guys doing that. Yeah, I need like five more of me so, as, <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm like literally sitting here chugging monsters today. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I noticed. Um, cool, man. So anything else you want to plug or talk about um you already touched base you've got the achilles trial you've got a wrist fracture um, might be moving into the joints yeah the other the other uh some of the other areas we're interested in are just general um I, again on the dod side getting into um kind of more of the uh more on on the training side looking at kind of general calisthenics with the use of bfr um there's those really nifty backpacks and and stuff that, yeah. that hold yeah. two units and things like that so Obviously, when if people are out on site or deployed, it's not like they're around a training facility. What can people do to maintain their muscle mass and bone in those kind of hostile environments where they're maybe down, where they're down, where they're where they're kind of stationed somewhere where they don't have all of the nice necessities, but you can get a low weight device out there and and uh, maybe potentially prevent um, injuries and fractures that are even more of a problem if you have it on site while you're out there. So. Yeah. Downrange um, issues are bad. So I, sure. think, I think I think doing some train, doing kind of more training studies like that, looking at general um, kind of body weight exercises um, compared to compared to with and without the cuff, and then compared to more conventional resistance training. Nice man. Well, badass stuff. And uh, it sounds like um, we'll just finalize this, but you and I will be presenting at combined sections virtually. Um, so we'll we'll get the the final details and. You'll, you'll get to hear more about this and, and actually see some of the, the graphs and things as well. So cool to go, dude. It's good talking to you, brother. Yep. Uh, well, I'll keep sending you stuff as, as we get it in. Yeah. Send it my way. I love it. Stay safe over there in H town. Right. Say hi to Corbin, Matt Holland, the rest of the wait, group. Over wait, there. Wait, wait, we can't leave. Hold on. Oh, here Hold comes on. a barbecue question or something. Yeah. See, he knows like Brad, come on. You're in Houston. What's the, what's the barbecue spot? Well, unfortunately, I would I would have said like go to Papa's Barbecue, but unfortunately, uh -huh. a lot of these, a lot of like the the like the spots that I would hit are unfortunately being like closed down closed due to COVID. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So it's let's like, go back to pre-COVID utopian United States of America. I really right? I really liked Papa's Barbecue like Papa's? out here, um, and there were some. There's just, here's the thing right in the Houston area. I don't know that you would call that the place to get like the best stuff in Texas. Um, it's right. like really like some of these, some of these like Austin, tiny central Texas. Yeah. Yes. And some of these tiny town, like we're open for like one day a week type places, but we've been yeah, cooking like it for like the last day. Yeah. 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 
Cool. cool man. Well, anyway. I'm a big fan of Killins out in Pearland. I will say I've been there once. It was good. I still want to go to Corkscrew, which I think is out in Spring. It's funny. It's funny because I'm gonna have some, have some of my Carolina friends that are gonna watch this and they're gonna comment that pork is a, is a bigger deal. Oh, than Oh, what do they know over there? <laughs> I got my Memphis barbecue shirt on, man. But I agree, pork is only for wearing on a t-shirt like I'm wearing. Yeah. Beyond that, stick to, stick to your cows. All right, man. Thanks, bro. Talk Thanks, soon. Brad. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. All right, man. Later. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.